Amen. Thank you, worship team. This morning is our fourth and final uh, look at Psalm 119. But don't worry if you've not heard any of them. I knew going into the series that a lot of recap would be needed. And um, so we'll do some of that. Psalm 119, if you think it through the Psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and then 119 kind of build on themselves as, as really lifting up the beauty of God's, of God's law, of God's decrees, of God's ways. And sometimes that language can be overwhelming. It, it, maybe it's been even used for harsh purposes in your life. So we, we sort of hear that and tune out, as some of you might already be doing. But I, wanna, I want us to know that God's ways are like the secrets or the life hacks to living in this life. Um, maybe think of it like this, the ultimate YouTube video. Do you all, when I have any question about home improvement, I mean, I have to go to YouTube. Anyone, like, I, and I, I'll buy something, I'll get the instructions out, and I'm like, I need to see somebody doing this, and then I find it. Well, that's what the psalmist is crying for. He's, he's aware of God's truth. He trusts and believes in God's truth, but he's also aware of his proneness to wander from God's ways and his need to be taught by God how these truths play out in his life. If you're not familiar, Psalm 119 is the longest. It's 176 verses. That's 22 stanzas of eight verses each. We're not going to read it all today. And each of those stanzas follows a Hebrew letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So if you were reading the Hebrew scripture and you were at a stanza for like Aleph, which is the first letter, every verse would start with that letter. And that creates a constraint. I remember in, in, in seventh grade we read uh, the, the poem, Oh, How I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways. And it's sort of this constraint of like telling someone. Can you imagine writing 176 verses on any subject? And at every eighth or ninth verse you had to switch letters and begin. Like when you get to the letter K, like what are you going to do? At the letter K. Try it. Um, so that's what this author did. And what that tells us is God is so big and so glorious that he found, inspired by the Spirit, that God's ways are perfect and true. So we'll read Psalm uh, 119 verses 1 to 8 just to kind of remind us of the genre. And then I'm going to read the last verse as well. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord, in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. So, so far he's talking about blessed are, are, are those who do that. He's not talking about himself yet. Then he says, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. In the last verse of that first stanza, verse 8, do not utterly forsake me. So you hear a person who is very aware of the reality and the beauty of God's law and yet very aware of his need to be taught and shaped according to it. But the last verse of the psalm that we're building this series around says this, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. And so what we've done is we really talked about the beauty of the law. That was our, after our intro sermon, that was our first one. That's the part that coincides with I do not forget your commandments. That's the overarching principle. And then the two things we're kind of building on are, last week, him crying out, seek your servant. 
the idea that you don't just come to the law and then do it, but you ask Jesus to, to teach it to you, to open your eyes. And this morning, we're going to focus on this first part, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into this conversation more fully. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your ways are perfect, and yet the sting of their knowledge that we fall so short is fresh in our minds and our hearts. But as we read this psalm, and of course, the unfolding of the New Testament, we realize you have sent your son, that that sting would be removed, and that now we can actually be honest in our weaknesses and proclaim our need to be taught your ways. Lord, let us, like the psalmist, learn to, to confess how we go astray while pressing in to longing to be your child. Will you seek your servants this morning in your, for your glory? Amen. Uh, in high school, I started working out. I hate saying that because then you're going to look at me and immediately make a judgment call of how it went. But I did. I went to the YMCA. I was a little scrawnier. And my friend Brandon, who was even scrawnier than me, that became our hobby. But Brandon also had a little bit of a temper. So I felt like half of my job was to, to work out with him and half was to keep him calm. And one of the things that made him really mad was when he put the weight on bench press that he knew he should be able to do. And then, you know, I'd lift it off and it's an awkward spotting thing you do. And he takes it down and just struggled and struggled and struggled. And then if I had to pull it up and re-rack it for him, he just felt like a failure. Like, I just, I don't have it today. And I remember this happened finally after about a dozen times. I said, Brandon, it should be heavy. Like the weight, this, that's why we do this. We do this because the weight's heavy. And when I can no longer lift it and I'm struggling, that's where the work's happening. And he still got mad. But I got a sermon illustration out of it that I'm using 30 years later. And that's really a picture of, I think, what we bring into our Christian lives is we have this mindset that how I perform equals how I am. How, how do you feel about yourself is, is most often, if not fully, based, based on how you think you're performing in some area of life, whether it's your friendships, your career, your academics, your, your athletics, whatever the thing is, and it's often a multitude of things, is what kind of leads you to feeling how you are. And the Bible turns that upside down. Jesus comes and says, no, first and foremost, you are loved. You are made right. Now, out of that posture, let's grow. Let's, let's, let's improve. So if I get behind the, the weight and I can't lift it, that's okay. That doesn't mean I'm not a, a good person that day. I don't have to feel bad about myself. And so we're going to kind of explore that a little bit further as we move into this passage because... Uh, as, I, as we look at it, we're going to find that the engine to the growth and grace, the engine to that growth and grace is that we have to admit, because of the Spirit's work, that we have wandered from it. Like, that's part and parcel. You're never going to go to the Scripture, read the Bible, find the truth of God's law, and go, I'm keeping that perfectly. You're going to always find, in seeing the beauty in God's law, that you also have room to grow. And that's good. That's not a bad thing. Now, we're not saying at the same time, therefore, don't worry about it. We're saying actually get used to that and keep moving toward God's law. So point one, I just want to remind us of God's law or God's ways are good for us. They actually bring us glory. So this is more of a recap. But the majority of this psalm is, is the psalmist explaining that he loves God's law, that there's blessing in God's ways. Um, 
And I think that so often the law has become a bad thing. I can't go all the way and re-explain that first sermon or the second sermon in the series. But I just want to remind us that if you had to define the law, what does it mean? It's, it's love. It's the law of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, even as I say those, often we evaluate, how am I doing? But I want you to hear the promise in that. Like, our culture likes the word love, right? Even in, in, the, in the arena of, of, of sexuality and gender and all the ways, I mean, love is like, the word love is a beautiful word in the culture. It's also behind about nine out of ten movies, right? Love stories. Like, we like love. But then we come to this idea that we're to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor, and I think we become overwhelmed. But do you hear the beauty and the promise of what it would be like if you felt affection toward God, knowing his affection towards you? If you actually loved the people you interacted with, your neighbors, if they were actually appealing and you could overlook mistakes because you care for them and you love them and they love you. Like that is a glorious picture of what the law and flourishing can look like. But so often I think we fall far short of that because it feels overwhelming. Just think of 1 Corinthians 13. Um, it's so good, we embroider it and forget it. That's how good it is. You know, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not, but we love it. We make the embroidery, we put it over here on the pillow, and we think to ourselves, isn't that sweet? And yet, G Paul's like, this is the beauty of the gospel. Can you imagine having that actually in your life toward people and receive from people? And yet we know when you read 1 Corinthians 13, he says, listen, everything else is going to fade away, but love will go on into heaven. And you'll never, ever, a, a trillion years in heaven will never get to the end of how much you can love. Isn't that interesting? You don't get to heaven, see God face to face, and now you are at capacity. It's an unending pursuit. And it's glorious. When Emily and I uh, and our kids all lived in, I think we were still in Fort Collins, you found your Nintendo. We, we had Nintendo when we were little. And Super Mario Brothers. And I remember playing Super Mario Brothers. And then somewhere along the way, it became passe. And then in our maybe 40s or late 30s, it became cool again. Uh, we, we plugged it in. And I remember like every day for about a week or two until what happened? Until we figured out how to, to rescue the princess. And once we remembered, oh, you go through that thing and you pop over there. And here's how you jump over that thing. And guess what? We quit playing Super Mario Brothers. Anyone else have that experience with a video game? That's how most of us think about the law. It's something, if I can just achieve it, I'll have that. I'll put it on the shelf. And yet the Bible says, no, it's this unending thing. Like the second you think you saved the princess, there's a whole new world. And you can go farther and deeper in it. So I just want you to have that mindset as we sort of transition to the, the major point of our sermon, which is this. If that's where we're going, if that's what's before us, how do we get there? It's learning with the psalmist to say, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. We are prone to wonder. And I want to be, I want to, it's a tricky thing to talk about. I'm not suggesting that we should, you know, in Romans 6, just go sinning that grace may abound by no means. But the closer I come to love and the, the beauty of who Jesus is, the more I'm going to notice how far I veer from that love. So the goal is to keep pursuing it 
while naming the fact that it's something I struggle with and I pr- I'm prone to wander away from. We see a picture of that in Isaiah 6, don't we? When Isaiah comes into the throne room of God, Simon, where are you? I looked this up. Raise your hand. Simon, I looked it up thanks to you. It was on your shirt, remember? Um, he's like, what? Sorry. Be careful getting to know me. I call you out in sermons. Uh, in Isaiah 6, it's the calling of Isaiah. He comes into the throne room of God. He sees what most theologians would consider the pre-incarnate Christ on his throne. And he's, the, the cherub, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. And he's so overwhelmed, he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And it's tempting to say, oh, he must have cursed. Or he, no, no, no. He's aware of whatever he has said heretofore of that, of Jesus or God, you know, of God, of Yahweh is nothing in comparison to who Yahweh is. It, it, it just is undone. It's undoing him. And the beauty is we'll never get to a place where in the presence of God we go, oh, yeah, I've been here, I've done this. It will always be glorious. And therefore, in, in uh, this side of heaven, because we actually do have indwelling sin, we're going to see our sin until we are in heaven and that sin has been removed. And so now that we know when we come to the word, we come to Jesus, uh, we have our sin, we're going to feel with Isaiah, I'm prone, or I'm, I'm, woe is me. Or Paul who says in 1 Timothy, a trustworthy saying, he says this, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And again, he's not boasting in his present sin as if he's like, he's simply saying, I am continually aware of my brokenness the closer I press into Jesus. Do not hear, oh, then I'll go sin. That's not what's being said. What's being said is don't stop pursuing righteousness out of the fear of being exposed because you will be exposed. That is the process. And so we need to learn what the psalmist to say, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. That's the last verse of this entire psalm. I wanted to pick it apart from it. First of all, where is he uh, going astray from? He's using this term like a lost sheep. So let's enjoy the metaphor that he's giving us. It's most likely David. And we would know that if you're a sheep, of course, sheep can't have self-consciousness. But if you could go, wow, I'm lost. From where? There's a flock somewhere that I don't see anymore. So there's this sense in which he strayed from some form of home, some form of a flock. He's gone off by himself. And I would just say, I think that is a huge risk in our present context, especially with this pandemic, that we will wander away from the very places and the very families and the, and the churches that we find home to be, and we'll go off on our own. In Colossians 1, we've read this a few weeks ago, Paul describes Jesus. This sort of unites the first point with this current point. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the psalmist longs to see God's word and God's ways, and we now know Jesus is that visible image of all the things he's wanting. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Um, Wow. Like Jesus is not just somewhere far away. He is ruling and reigning 
He is overseeing all the things that's happening. We can't go into all the theology there, but we can trust him that he has the he is keeping us alive, that we can trust his processes and he is glorious, that he made all things. But listen to this next verse. He is the head of the body, the church. Oh. Oh, that thing, the church, that's so passé. Is it? I mean, this is the body of Christ whom he will use to change the world. And the question is, are we straying from that body? One of the things I love about seeing you guys from RUF and gals uh, in these first few weeks, especially as, um, and I have sons in the ministry, I led RUF years ago. It's, it's you see right before your very eyes, uh, young people realizing, okay, I'm on this campus and it's gonna get crazy, I need a community. And I love to see the community that forms in RUF. It's like right there. And many of the, of the folks that are graduated and in our church and have gone on will testify of what an amazing ministry RUF is in the other campus ministries as well. And we need community. And I think all of us can remember, yes, that's absolutely something we need. The question we all need to make sure we're aware of is, where are we wandering from that reality? Which leads us to the next thought within this point, that we do it gradually. A sheep that wanders does so gradually. They don't sprint, I don't think. I think it's patch by patch. You know, there's a little grass. That looks pretty good. About eight feet. I'll just, I'll start eating. It's gone. There's one right there. Pretty soon, they've wandered away. They don't see the flock anymore. We do it patch by patch. And it also, it looks good while you're doing it. Like, that looks yummy. It doesn't seem unlawful. So we have this tendency to wander. And I love it because this illustration proves the point. It's not this malicious, like, I'm not sinning. I didn't plan this out. It just sort of happened. We don't see it. Oftentimes, others see it while we don't. I was kind of talking about that with Emily. She's like, it reminds me of a scene from It's a Wonderful Life. And I, I'm referencing her because I always talk about It's a Wonderful Life. But this time, it's her fault. You know the scene in the movie? I don't know if you've seen it. There's this old gym floor over the pool, and they're doing the, what was that dance they're doing? Come on, somebody. Older friends. The Charleston. That's Grayson who said that, by the way. That's how often we've watched that movie. Uh, they're doing the Charleston. It's a competition, and somebody's mad at, at George, so he sneaks back. And the kid who plays Alfalfa, by the way, is the actor who's like, hey, you know, there's a key, and we can open that floor, and there's a pool. And so the whole time this is happening, they're getting closer to the edge and the rest of the crowd's backing away and they think they're amazing because the crowd's like watching them and the spotlight's on them. But what's happening is they're getting dangerous. It's a bad illustration because it ends up being a great part of the movie. They fall in and then the entire, the entire party jumps in. But let's pretend it was poison in there, okay? Is that fair? That would be a really bad thing, right? So they're just, that's how it is. The sheep is just enjoying life and everything's fine and no, nothing's wrong. And the next thing you know, we've gradually moved away. And then the third thought of it would be just the harm. So the first one is we're leaving the flock. The second one is gradual. The third one is uh, there's harm. When a sheep is away from the shepherd and the flock, though they may not see it, there is real harm. And there is real harm for us when we do that. And I don't know, I, I mean, I can't, I could start listing harms, but I think even just in the last year, the amount of depression and anxiety and fragmentation, aside from other things like suicide and just other horrible things, the harm is real. I think everyone in this room can go, 
I know exactly what it feels like to be isolated. I know exactly what it feels like to have found myself outside of, of, of the body of Christ or a group or being known. Uh, and a lot of it was done because it had to be done in some ways. But my point is, are we, are we afraid of that harm in a good way? Are we aware of the fact that there are grave dangers for us when we drift from our theology, when we drift from the scriptures, when we drift from the people of God? Or are we sort of like, no, I'm thinking I'm fine until it's too late. And I have found even in my own life, sometimes when you see these places where you like are suffering, you can't just jump right back. You don't just go back to church that one week and it's all better, so to speak. It's, it's, it takes time and it takes repentance. And so when we have found that we have drifted away from whom the home that God has given us, whether that's you want to talk about the church, your, your walk with him, your time in scripture, all of these places he's given you, which we'll talk about in a moment, understand that there is real harm. And we, I think we can imagine the extent of that. I do want to just note that in Psalm 19, another, again, the psalm that sort of pre- is the precursor to 119 about the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is true and sure, making wise the simple. But right there at the end, he says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. I just love the fact that the psalmist in both 19 and 119 is aware of the fact that at one and the same moment, we can proclaim that God's way is glorious and healing and true, and I'm prone to wander. Are you aware of how you are prone to wander? What are your methods? I'd love to, I mean, I'd love for you to process that even now or on your own in your journal with a friend later. Is it, how do you begin to, to check out, so to speak? What does that look like for you? What are the things, are you curious as to the things that are precursors to why you might say, I'm not going to go to this group anymore. I'm not going to go to that Bible study anymore. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to really open the scripture. Uh, What do you do when you feel um, harm? Do you run toward Jesus or do you run away from him? What are your escapes? What do you do when you're stressed? What do you run to? Netflix? I love Netflix, but are you binging? Alcohol, pornography, drugs, gossip, slander. There's any number of ways we medicate ourselves as we wander from the places where there is healing in the body of Christ in the scriptures. So be aware of that. And I just want to finish our last few moments with the thought of how and how we can respond, which really we did discuss last week. But he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. And we talked about last week how Peter didn't seem to believe Jesus was the figure on the water. The other disciples believed him. But Peter's like, bid me to, if it's you, Lord, bid me to come. Remember that story? And and Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets on the water and he sees the waves and gets afraid and thinks he's going to die. And then and only then does he say, Jesus, save me. And Jesus clasps onto him. And it's both. A low moment for Peter, but a high moment. Because on one hand, yes, he didn't think it was Jesus and needed more proof. But on the other hand, he cried out to Jesus. That is the application of this entire discussion. It's not go make yourself better. It's not figure out how you escape and then change those behaviors. It's cry out to Jesus. Lord, I'm doing it again. Lord, I see myself not wanting to go 
be with this group, this person, this in your word, whatever it is that you're escaping from, cry out, Jesus, will you please rescue me? And there are some practical ways you can do it. Prayer, obviously, is the primary way in Scripture. These are means of grace. Have you all heard of the term means of grace? Sometimes they're called the ordinary means of grace. People have been irritated by that terminology. Uh, another word is disciplines. But the means of grace, kind of from the reform perspective, are the scriptures, uh, the sacraments, uh, prayer, fellowship, the church. And they're often called ordinary. And that's a funny word. I, I thought of this. I, this is one of those stories you've heard a million times. But the man in the flood. He's, the waters are rising. They, they know the flood's coming, and he's waiting for Jesus to save him. Have you heard this? So the friend drives by in the four-wheel drive, and, and, and hey, get, get in. I've got room. He's like, no, I'm waiting for Jesus. And then the guy leaves. Anyone heard this? I hope zero. Dang it. Some of you have heard it. Then a boat comes, because now he's on the second floor of his house. And he's like, the water's rising, and a boat drives up, hey, I've got room, jump in. No, no, I'm waiting for Jesus. Eventually the water's so high, he's had to climb on the roof. And a helicopter comes and drops him a ladder. And the guy climbs down to rescue him. He's like, no, no, I'm waiting for Jesus. And then the waters rise up and he dies. And he goes to heaven. That's the good news in this made-up story. Uh, and he meets God and he says, God, why did you not save me? And God said, well, I sent you a car, a truck and the boat. And the helicopter. And the point I like about that is we want supernatural, like, feelings and things. And sometimes God's like, go to these places I have given you. Like, walk into church. It is super awkward. And for those of you that are new, I get it. Like, this is really awkward. Like, it's a small room. I don't know people. What's that song? Who's this guy preaching? But you go through these moments of awkwardness and ordinariness to meet people. And it's in the meeting of people, in the building of relationships, where you have a flock that's forming around you where you can contribute and they can contribute to you as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his amazing work, Life Together, which I highly recommend. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor, theologian, who was killed in a concentration camp. Uh, he had been able to leave Germany but went back in and wanted to be there for his people. And in his book, Life Together, he's highlighting much of what he's learned from living. He was single, but living within a community, especially in these dark times. And he says this, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Now, a few, a few pages later, he's unpacked that. I, just, I would like for this to sink in a little bit. He says, because Christ has long since acted for the brother you're engaging or the sister, before you do, before you can act, you must leave that person for Christ. What he's saying is that person who's in Christ no longer needs to feed you psychologically. They don't need to be used for your gain. They are in Christ. You are in Christ. And he says, unless you have this relationship mediated through the cross, you really don't have a friendship at all. All of the friendships that the world has are, are built around what can you do for me? There's no cross. 
but the gospel says, because I have Christ, my sins are forgiven, I have all I need in Christ, I can now engage a brother or sister in Christ, and they me in a mediated way through the blood of Christ. And that's where a real relationship happens. Practically, that means instead of showing up and hanging out and trying to prove how amazing I am in our first meeting, I might be able to say, I'm prone to wander. I'm struggling. I've been lonely. And you can begin to be honest. And the other person might be disarmed and go, you know, me too. Let's, let's start having coffee and processing these feelings together. Let's go do this activity. And pretty soon a relationship is actually formed on pointing each other to Jesus and to caring for one another. The opposite of what the world does. Because in the world's method, which we all engage in, we all still live like we're in junior high. We build relationships around popularity and how cool we are. And yet inside we realize, I can't keep this up. This isn't going to last. This isn't the real me. And so we burn through people, don't we, in groups. And so my encouragement as we enter this new phase coming hopefully out of a pandemic, trying to figure out what the church is going to look like. I mean, there's a lot of missiologists predicting the church is like going to lose a third of its people. Not this one, I hope. Uh, but the church across the world, maybe this one, is that believers who walk with Jesus will say with the psalmist, that your, I believe the law, like I love Jesus. And then the two next th thoughts are, I'm prone to wonder, rescue me, Jesus. And he will do that as we cry out to him through people. But it's going to be different. It's going to be a relationship like you've never had before. It's not this privatized religion. It's being known and being fully loved. And let me just, as I'm closing, say, it's also reciprocity you begin to listen to other people too. Someone says they're lonely, and you don't immediately go, I know what you're talking about. You go, well, tell me more. And you ask them questions. And how has that been for you? And what can we do to help? And you lean in mutually. And this church and this ministry and all the ministries represented and all the churches in Stillwater uh, and the world would grow as Christians simply come back to these basic truths. So let's pray for that as we move into our fall. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you use the church to accomplish your mission. Lord, we know that the church changes over time. Like the book of Judges, we see times where we take advantage of you, where we don't seek your ways. But Lord, maybe we're in one of those moments where we need to wake up, run to you, and ask for revival. A revival of loving your scripture, of loving your means of grace, of loving your body, our fellow brothers and sisters. I pray you would restore relationships, bring repair, bring new, deep relationships built on mutual love, the knowledge of each other, the knowledge of you. In your name we pray. Amen.